Hello, welcome to the University of Brighton podcast. I'm Richard Newman. This week, we're talking about sport and sports journalism with principal lecturer Simon McKennis about how sports has returned during COVID-19, the challenges of sports journalism during that time, and how the industry is being disrupted and shaken up by principally digital outlets. To demonstrate how fortunate we are to have Simon teaching future journalists, as well as his work at the uni, Simon's the sports journalist chair of the National Council for the Training of Journalists, or NCTJ, passing courses from the council is usually the industry requirement for employment. He was also a former sports journalist at The Sun and currently trains journalists at Sky Sports News. Simon, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for coming on. I think, first of all, it'd be good to get a little bit more detailed about your background. Um, so you were a full-time journalist. What sort of things did you work on and why did the industry interest you? Uh, good question, actually. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I knew from a very uh, young age um, that I wanted to be a journalist. I was involved in um, school magazines, um, ended up um, getting involved with the school newspaper, uh, sorry, the university newspaper. Um, and uh, yeah, I knew from a, an early age I was going to go on that trajectory. And after I went to university, I did a fast track NCTJ course. Then I started work um, with local papers um, in Essex. I started off as a news reporter. I then got my senior um, qualifications. And then I moved into sport um, and I, I became deputy sports editor of the Colchester Gazette. Uh, and then I moved on to Fleet Street and I went down a sort of tabloid route. And that was mainly because the local paper I was working at was very kind of sort of quite tabloidy um, in terms of its kind of positioning. And it made sense, therefore, if I was going to go into Fleet Street was to go kind of through that route. So I sort of started off um, just doing some sort of shift work at, at, at the now defunct News of the World and uh, ended up um, getting a job on the sports desk um, of The Sun. Um, and I was there for about sort of eight, nine years. Um, and then I decided to move um, uh, into academia with the university um, in at the beginning of 2009. So, yeah, I've been at Brighton now for a while, for a good sort of 11, 11 years now. What was the reason to move into academia for you? Um, and, and tell us about the work as well you do with uh, Sky and the NCTJ. Yeah, well, um, yeah, it wasn't an easy decision, that was for sure. I, I mean, it's not, you know, it's quite unusual, you know, if you've got a job with a sports desk on a sort of national newspaper of a national news organisation, um, it's kind of quite difficult to sort of give that up. But I, I personally felt that, you know, I sort of wanted a change, really. Um, I think the nature of sports journalism is you're doing a lot of sort of evenings, weekends, and that, that was great. Uh, I had a great time there. Uh, you know, when I was sort of in my 20s, um, sort of early 30s, but then I started to want to sort of move um, into, um, yeah, my, my priorities, I think, in life changed. And I, I was interested in the idea, I, I suppose, of um, thinking and writing about sports journalism. Um, the, I knew the industry was changing. I mean, you know, we have to remember that the time I was in the industry was a time of absolutely massive change. Um, you know, I saw that transition really sort of from print to web um, and even when I left the industry that transition was still going on um, you know I mean I left in 2009 and you know Twitter which has been a massively transformative uh, platform in sports journalism wasn't really sort of kind of widely adopted um, for usage till about 2010 so I didn't have that kind of experience so yeah I, I saw that kind of move towards web um, and worked in that and that was a really interesting time 
really to be working in the industry. Um, but, you know, for me, I felt it was the right time to move. I like the idea of working in university and working with students and, you know, thinking about ways um, of a kind of, I suppose, improving the industry, improving the profession. That's kind of what I wanted to work with students on. Um, you know, when I left in 2009, you know, it was kind of around the time where there was some ethical problems, let's say, in the uh, in the industry um, you know I was working at News International which is now News UK obviously at a time um, where unbeknownst to us on the sports desk um, there was sort of phone hacking um, sort of going on in the news department um, and I was there at the newspaper when that that was all happening so I think to get to that kind of point um, and think well actually you know I've, I've kind of I'm seeing this sort of issues that are kind of happening here um, it was a good opportunity to sort of move in and start thinking about the sort of industry more and you know at that time sports journalism uh was a very sort of kind of um was very much its formative um early stages really in terms of a kind of research field if you like and it's been really interesting over the last um 11 years um to sort of see how that's kind of really grown and matured and it's been you know i think it's been really exciting to be a part of that mm. so what about the work you do elsewhere as well the the positions you have at like training journalists at sky and places like that yeah so basically it was, it was an interesting one because um when i started at the university i was still doing um saturdays at, at the news of the world and you know when i joined the university um you know it was really important to me that i kind of kept that involvement with industry and obviously a decision was taken amidst the phone hacking scandal to close the news of the world and I was thinking oh crikey okay well how am I going to keep my industry links now and it was literally a week after the news of the world closed um, I got a phone call um, from the NCCJ to say that um, you know Sky um, Sky Sports News are looking sort of launch this kind of sort of staff development sort of process and they're looking for somebody from kind of like you know a print background um, somebody watching experience and um, yeah they, they, they kind of thought that I might be able to do that so um that's how i got involved and that was back in sort of 2011 so um yeah i've been involved with sky now for a while and that's really you know it's great i mean it's really interesting i, I don't come from a broadcast background so it's been really interesting to sort of go in there and see i think some of the differences if you like between broadcast and print and you know the new ways of working also the challenges that they've been facing um particularly over the last sort of 10 years and um it's been great to sort of work with the journalists um, there and really it's not a setup where um, I kind of tell them what to do I just try and create an environment where they're kind of reflecting you know on their practice and trying to encourage them to really think you know quite deeply about what they're doing and you know you're talking about journalists who work in an unbelievably busy fast 24-hour role in news environment and you know it's, it's a great opportunity I think for them to just kind of take a little bit of time out come into a room with me and just think about what they're doing away from the newsroom. And I, I'd like to think that they really appreciate that and they really get a lot out of it, um, mm. to be honest. And I think it feeds back into the newsroom. I think it makes them better journalists, more reflective practitioners. And I think that can only be a good thing for both the organisation and for, you know, sports journalism, um, you know, in general, really, because certainly in this country, you know, Sky Sports News, are probably you know one of the most visible outlets if you like of sports journalism really so um yeah it's great to be involved in that and i 
it's something that I really, really enjoy. Uh, in terms of the NCTJ involvement, yeah, um, yeah, that involves kind of setting um, national exams. Um, it also involves kind of chairing a board of, um, I suppose, sort of markers, if you like, where we kind of determine the kind of subject benchmarks um, for sports journalism training um, in the UK. And obviously, you know, that's something that we're constantly having to review as the industry changes and we get a lot of feedback from the industry on, you know, how it's all evolving and what have you. So that's a good thing to be involved um, with as well. Um, and it's great to be in a position where I sort of feel I can kind of help, you know, make a major contribution in terms of sort of shaping that kind of sort of those benchmark standards really um, mm. in, this, in, in this country. Mm. Um, just coming to your work at the university and uh, journalism and sports journalism courses, we know it's a strange time for everyone at the moment. How will the courses uh, adapt this autumn? But also placement-wise, students may be, you know, a little bit concerned. They might be able to, won't be able to go on placement. Can you tell us how how that will be tackled? Yeah, I mean, it's an interesting question because, um, I mean, in a way, it's something that we've already had to conf confront because um, when lockdown started, our third years were in the process of um, submitting their work placement portfolios um, for uh, assessment really so we had to start thinking about you know kind of more liberal interpretations um, of what constitutes work experience and work placement uh, you know obviously once the lockdown started um, you know newsrooms were you, you know kind of um, reorganizing themselves so that only essential workers were sort of going in there so obviously in that situation, the kind of work placement schemes they were running were sort of the first to go in many respects. So um, that was out of the question. And it was just about being more flexible in your thinking. I mean, as the industry was removing it, was kind of moving into ways of working, then I think the kind of student activity kind of started to go with that. And I think that will continue to evolve into the next academic year. I mean, we've already been in a situation in the last few weeks where we've been contacted by um, companies saying they're looking for students kind of get involved with working for their website and what have you sort of on a remote basis so i think as the industry is kind of moving into that kind of area um i think the kind of student contribution um will sort of kind of come with it so it's it's down to us really to be sort of quite flexible um and quite accommodating in our sort of interpretation of what what constitutes work experience um for students i mean you know we've got our own um um content platform overtimeonline.co.uk which is the course website and again you know students i think they're contributing to that that in itself is a kind of form of publishing kind of you know it's in the public domain so um yeah we just have to make sure um that yeah from a student point of view we're not kind of uh creating kind of really narrow uh frameworks and interpretations around that um so yeah we've got to we've got to make that as easy as possible uh, and as realistic as possible, I think, for students to achieve. Mm. Before we move on from this, um, can you tell us about the you leading the uh, creation of, of uh, new master's courses? Can you tell us a bit about that and, and the work which has gone into it? Yeah, I mean, we've, I mean, we've had a sport journalism course at the university since about um, 2003. Um, it's a long-standing, well-established course. And around about 2014, I think it was, we started the journalism undergraduate course. So uh, once that kind of happened, we were starting to think, well, actually, um, we're starting to kind of develop a bit of a cluster of journalism courses here, which is good. Um, 
we kind of like to think we've been quite successful really in terms of recruitment um, over the years. And we thought it was an opportunity to kind of move the, the, the kind of subject area forward, um, take it to the next level with a master's program, hopefully kind of stimulate a little bit more of a kind of sort of research culture and an intellectual environment around the subject area. Um, I mean, the masters are very much kind of aimed um, at students who maybe for their undergraduate studies have done a non-journalism um, related course, whether that's at Brighton or another institution. And uh, it's an opportunity for them to kind of come into, come with us and do a bit more focused study on journalism if they've established that's what they want to do. And uh, they get then get the professional qualifications, effectively do a kind of conversion year, and then they'll, they'll be in a better position to sort of go into the industry. So that was really the sort of two main sort of reasons behind it, which was to kind of expand uh, the subject area to sort of take it to a sort of the next level. Um, and also to kind of um, make it possible for students who wouldn't otherwise get this opportunity to study with us um, to, to get the opportunity, really. Let's talk a little bit about COVID and the impact it's had on sports journalism. Unprecedented. And, and it's forced almost every sports focused outlet to be creative and really think about what they're doing, isn't it? Yes. I mean, yeah, I, I mean, it's quite funny, actually, because already when we think about disruption it's caused sports journalism we're already talking in the past tense because of course Premier League is back up and running cricket's back up and running we've you know started the second test already today so sport has kind of um yeah I mean it was a fairly brief period in many respects um where it was in this situation and uh yeah it's it's kind of I think gradually kind of going back to normal in terms of how they're kind of covering live sport. Um, obviously, like you say, I think freelancers have been the big losers um, in that respect. And I think the way sports journalism really kind of, um, the general approach to the sort of pandemic to kind of coverage was really to kind of sort of delve into more sort of nostalgic mm. elements of sport, really. Um, so, yeah, it was kind of like almost summer's come early because in sports journalism, you know, the months of, June and July um, tend to be relatively quiet and that's when the kind of whole kind of gossip uh, transfer rumours uh, kind of start to happen and uh, I think that just happened a bit earlier yeah. this year as a result as a result of that but yeah I mean unprecedented situation I mean I can't really remember a time where there's been absolutely no sport um, to cover like that usually there's yeah. something going on um, and I think the industry found itself in a very unprecedented situation but yeah like you say you know, undoubtedly freelancers um, with a big loose in that because highly expendable, not really much protections. And um, yeah, that's, that's the way the industry works, unfortunately. Mm. You say going back to normal, I mean, it's, it certainly feels different to from the other end, covering it from uh, these new restrictions that we have. And also in terms of the access we're getting to um, people in sport, which is something we'll come to later when we're talking about how sports journalism is sort of evolving, really. Um, and you wonder whether some of these things will be here to stay in terms of not being able to get as good access to, to sports managers, to, to, to players. Um, with the return of sport itself, how have you sort of found it? You know, we're talking around this, the end of the, the Premier League season. So, I mean, do you think generally it's been a success? Uh, I think it's been, I think it's been a success. For the, for the Premier League, probably. Uh, I mean, I think they've, they've managed to get it up and running and they don't seem to have had any sort of real issues or 
problems so far, um, particularly in terms of COVID-19, in terms of positive tests um, that have kind of put a span of words in terms of disrupting the original plans. Uh, I mean, it's a difficult one really in the sense that, you know, I, I think as a starting point, we obviously have to understand um, that it, this was really all about um, the sort of broadcast deals and the TV rights and, you know, fulfilling those contracts because, you know, I think it would have cost the Premier League something like 260 million, mm -hmm. something like that on, um, in, in kind of lost uh, broadcast cash if they hadn't completed the season. So there was obviously a massive uh, financial incentive, let's say, to get things uh, back and up and running. And that was obviously the kind of main um, driver um, behind this, really. Um, how that sits, I'm not entirely sure. Um, but do you think it, do you think it would have come back at all if there, these TV deals weren't in place? Would it have been a case of like a month or two ago, you would have said, we can't guarantee safety, let's, let's give it a rest. If, there, if, if these massive deals weren't in place, not just TV deals, but commercial deals um, as well. So if you could take it just from a pure safety point of view and common sense, would we be watching sport now? I don't, you know, it's a really, it's a really good question. I mean, obviously, there's there's a lot of protocols that are in place. Um, you know, they've got the different zones at Premier League um, stadiums and what have you. They've got the frequent testing of players. I mean, I think they've got it to a point where I think that they've got some serious health and safety measures. Um, so yeah, they got to a point where yeah, they kind of move forward um, with it. I guess so. Um, yeah, I mean, it's happening. I mean, look, yes, what we've got to remember about this is because there's so much money at stake, there's then a lot of money you can put into those health and safety measures. Mm. Um, you know, you can actually build the kind of infrastructure around that. Um, you know, I think it's going to be an interesting question because obviously the only football that's really taking place at the moment is Premier League and Championship in this country. Um, you know, once we get to the next season, where does that leave League One, League Two uh, clubs in the in the non-league pyramid, who maybe don't have those, those kind of access to the resources that it takes to make those um, kind of measures and those protocols um, work? So, yeah, I think there's some interesting sort of longer-term questions for football in in general once we step outside um, the sort of top two tiers, really. Mm. I mean, where does it leave fans because you know they're often especially in the in the premier league and the the really cash rich sports often kind of marginalized anyway now we're seeing no fans in the stadiums but record tv audiences so it's be we, we have to see aren't we that the sport can short term still be a very attractive offer you know we keep there's the rhetoric of sport is nothing without fans but at the moment it's surviving quite well I think we've known for a while, I mean, certainly probably in the last 20 or 30 years, there's been that kind of creeping sort of developments in the way that professional sport has become increasingly globalised and that's been driven by broadcast deals, global broadcasting. And as that's kind of developed, um, the kind of, you know, and grown in power, if you like, then what we've really effectively seen is the power that fans have kind of go the other way and decrease as that's increased really. Uh, so we've kind of known that for a while. We know the sense of kind of alienation um, that a lot of fans feel because of these kind of globalized developments in professional sport. Uh, and I guess what's ended up happening now um, in Project Restart is just that stark 
manifestation of that, that realization of it, that you know, here it is, you know, the show is actually still going on and um, they don't actually need fans, um, you know, in order to make that, that happen really. And um, once you get to that stark realization, then all it can probably lead to is even a further erosion of any kind of sort of, any fan voice that's kind of left really. I mean, it's, 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 yeah, fans are probably the big losers in this, in this situation. Obviously there's been the odd concession, there's games, there's a few games on terrestrial TV as a concession to that. Um, you've got the sort of video fan wall, but that, you know, they're fairly sort of kind of token mm. sort of gestures, really. I mean, at the end of the day, the football is really going on uh, without fans. Um, and, um, you know, we've got access to fan noise. Apparently two thirds of viewers are kind of going for the fan noise option. So it's really all about the sort of broadcast experience. But we've known for a while that, you know, the fans who have the power, uh, particularly in football, um, are the ones who sit in armchairs, <laughs> not necessarily, you know, the ones who actually sit in, in, in the stadium. So, um, yeah, when we, when we actually look back at the history of football, everything around the sports stadium was sort of kind of geared up um, towards the fans, you know, all the advertising and what have you, um, any kind of razzmatazz, but that's long since gone. You know, anything that happens, you know, in a stadium, even the fans themselves are all part of that, you know, sort of global spectacle um, of sport, really. And I just think all that's happened now since Project Restart is just that stark realisation, that manifestation of, of all these kind of dynamics, really. I guess there's a debate about whether the actual product on the pitch is, is quite as good. Um, I've been inside the stadium as well, been lucky enough to be inside reporting on these Brighton Hove Albion games. I can tell you the, the atmosphere is very strange. Um, I think only now is starting to see players get used to maybe what they're playing under and some of the quality of matches has got a bit better. But there is already talk of fans maybe coming in for, for next season. I know we're focusing on football a little bit here, but um, in our local area, fairly soon, because when, when, when we're recording this, there's lots of talk about Glorious Goodwoods um, admitting somewhere close to, I don't know, 5,000 spectators a day, which would be one of the first sports in the country to, um, to allow fans back in, which is ironic, I guess, because at the start of the pandemic, we had the Cheltenham Festival, which was... <laughs> Uh, taking place in packs of packed crowds and often criticised for that. It's, it's a weird balance, isn't it, to, to get these fans back inside these sporting venues? Yes, and obviously, you know, presumably there's going to have to be some kind of social distancing mm. measures and that, you know, leads to, is going to lead to kind of, you know, drastically reduced capacities, you'd think, in, in sort of all the grounds and, and stadiums, really. I mean, yeah, it's interesting to say, you know, to focus on football because, you know, I would say, you know, watching the cricket, that, that feels even weirder because I think at least with football, we have some kind of familiarity. You know, we, we, we've seen games played behind closed doors because of UEFA bans or whatever. It's not massively unfamiliar, but yeah, watching a test match um, where um, there's absolutely no fans in it ends up feeling like a kind of, you know, mid-table county cricket match, you know, in sort of early September mm. uh, is very much a weird experience. It's also worth pointing out as we kind of focus on the Premier League because obviously that's the big talking point you know this kind of massive inequality really um, in sport particularly in terms of men's sport being prioritized and women's sport really getting the thin end of the wedge and again you know what we, you know when I said earlier about the stark manifestation of you know sort of fan and broadcast power we're seeing that as well in terms of those kind of gender inequalities yeah. um, in sport and it's pretty clear um, where the sort of priorities lie in that respect. Yeah, and that's a that's a that's a good point actually because we're also 
the the women's game, especially in football, was starting to starting to make some some progress in terms of national broadcast, and uh, especially since the World Cup um, last year, they are going to be potentially the women's game is potentially going to be one of the big losers, isn't it? Because it's losing that momentum. We don't know when the fans are going to be allowed back in the stadiums, as we say, and it's just um, the, as you say, the priorities from broadcasters maybe appear to be elsewhere. They could really suffer. Yes, and they've obviously had the European Championships pushed back another yep. year, but there was a knock-on effect of the men's Euros being pushed back a year. So, yeah, absolutely. Any kind of momentum that kind of came out of um, the World Cup, yeah, it's been well and truly sort of lost, really, um, which is, I think, a real pity. Um, and that opportunity to kind of get the momentum going again is unfortunately still quite, still quite a long way away in, in many respects so yeah um yeah i think difficult sort of knock-on effects from this um which is a real sort of shame um yeah in many respects yeah, yeah. we don't know when sport's going to go back to um normal let's move on to a book that you're working on can you tell us a bit about that before we talk about um the way that sort of sports journalism is being disrupted in general yeah, I mean, there's a uh, there's a book series, a Routledge book series um, called Digital Disruptions, um, which is very much a sort of journalism studies thing, um, where sort of different academics are looking at different aspects of journalistic um, practice, really, and looking at how the sort of digital age has kind of changed it, how it's disrupted it, and uh, yeah, I'm I'm writing a a, a sort of book on uh, disrupting sports journalism, um, so it's just a sort of kind of general book, really that looks at kind of those, you know, what, what, what um, the digital age is meant for sports journalism, um, but really thinking about it in terms of kind of almost an existential crisis in many ways, where, you know, for many years, sports journalism was used to kind of having a real sort of monopoly, you know, over sports communication. And uh, now it's kind of one of those kind of many voices, I guess. And what does that where does that leave sports journalism in terms of a kind of professional project really uh in terms of their distinctiveness in terms of their cultural authority um you know society has a lot of expectations of sports journalists at a lot of different levels uh whether that's being a sort of you know watching on power making power whether it's being socially and ethically responsible um in its reporting um how it's kind of projecting political issues that kind of manifests itself in sport. Um, there's all sorts of different expectations on, on sports journalism. And, you know, the reality is, and it has become increasingly difficult for sports journalism to achieve those things. I mean, you said earlier about, you know, for example, the impact of COVID. In the moment you kind of get rid of, you know, freelancers, you're in a situation where, you know, all the guys in the office or the staff are in a situation where they've got to work harder they're spread more thinly and yeah that opportunity to kind of do more considered more reflective more analytical um sports journalism kind of gets further away because the thing is with internet you're feeding the beast it's that constant publication constantly putting out fresh output and still much time to kind of think about it. it's all very much sort of surface level um sort of content really so you know there's a lot of challenges really around sports journalism you know the fact that um you've got a lot of kind of encroachment if you like on their territory whether that's from bloggers 
whether it's from um, clubs themselves. Um, I saw um, the Tottenham website uh, was yesterday or the day before run an exclusive with Jose Mourinho. I mean, you know, this is <laughs> this is the domain of, of journalism mm. running exclusives, and yeah. there it is, the actual kind of club um, sort of PR department basically are, are and it's quite bizarre really because they should be getting exclusives <laughs> i mean the whole point of an exclusive journalism is that you kind of was a level of kind of journalistic mouse and kind of working contacts to kind of get there but yeah it's quite bizarre but a club breaks its own news and and it describes it's an exclusive so straight away that kind of tells you a lot about that encroachment on sports journalism territory and how sports journalism is trying to kind of repel those kind of challenges and how it kind of maintains its own boundaries um, and you know that's really crucial because if it can't maintain those boundaries and it can't prove its expertise and its distinctiveness then that leaves serious questions in terms of its cultural authority um, in terms of its kind of public trust and in terms of its kind of very sort of existence really um, in terms of what, how we traditionally understand sports journalism to be so I think a big question that the book is kind of considering is, is sports journalism kind of morphing into something different in terms of what it is as a professional um, field and in terms of who belongs to that professional field? So it's, kind of, it's, it's a book that's really trying to kind of ask bigger kind of existential crisis, um, questions around um, sports journalism and, and what this might look like. Um, you think, going you, forward and how this feeds into those kind of societal expectations of what they should be doing and what, mm. what they're there for really mm. let's tackle a few of those bits i mean first of all do you think there's a bit of a danger that sports journalism sort of misses the generation at least so the younger generation are often consuming their sports news or well should we call it sports content instead i guess um through um blogs originally but now it's youtube channels it's it's influencers it's uh it's fans tv it's um fan podcasts which often get like the odd the odd guest on maybe the, the, some clubs are even helping them um get yeah. it instead of going to the sports journalist because you know you're probably going to get a little bit less scrutiny and a, and, a, and a good amount of um positive pr so do you think like some of the younger generation maybe aren't consuming the sort of harder sports journalism potentially I think it's a really good question. I mean, I think, I suppose journalism in general has always had this kind of issue where what tends to get the kind of most, um, the biggest audience tends to be, uh, how can I say this, the less robust sort of journalism, if you, if you can call it that. You know, we're talking about the kind of celebrity news, et cetera, et cetera, the sort of tittle-tattle aspects of it. And, you know, we've got to remember, and I guess this is, this is the whole thing about journalism is, you know, ultimately there's a tension between the fact that journalism uh, works in, you know, it's in a private sector. You know, as a journalist, you're, you're working for a company that needs to make a profit, that needs to, you know, it's answerable to shareholders. You know, even local papers, you know, are owned, you know, so, you know, a company like NewsQuest is a subsidiary of a great big American media conglomerate, really. And, you know, so nothing's immune from this. So as a journalist, ultimately, you're working very much in that kind of commercial uh, imperative, really, where it is about generating audiences and it is about generating advertising revenue because that pays the way. So whatever that takes, you, you're going to kind of do it. Um, but then you've got the professional side of it where, you know, certainly when you think about journalism training, 
Um, you know, it's really all about the professional aspects, principles such as, you know, objectivity, autonomy, ethics, you know, um, public interest. And, you know, sometimes those kind of professional objectives and principles are, are kind of conflict with the commercial um, imperative. Um, sometimes the commercial imperative can take journalists into, you know, arguably quite an ethical area. So there's this tension really at the heart of the, the kind of profession generally between that commercial imperative and the professional principles. Sometimes, you know, they, they kind of dovetail quite nicely, but a lot of the times there can be this conflict and this kind of tension. I guess that's kind of where we're at really. Um, I think the question for journalism around the kind of weightier hard news, as you say, is okay, uh, you may not necessarily attract as big an audience, but you know, is there a, a, a bigger picture here in terms of the kind of prestige, the credibility that actually gives your news organization? And particularly as we've seen this movement towards kind of more subscription-based models, you know, we look at the likes of the Times, you know, we look at the Telegraph, for instance, um, there is, you know, what comes with that, I think is a real obligation and a requirement really um, to be producing quality journalism because for people to subscribe that's what they really want they, they, they want to feel like they're getting something that they can't necessarily get um, elsewhere and that leads in to your other question which is around journalistic access which generally speaking has become quite amorphous um, you know highly restricted and therefore that leads to quite um, homogenous sort of kind of sports news so you know, if you're in a situation where you're behind a paywall and you've got to try and get something different to a sports journalist that's not behind a paywall how do you do that it's actually really difficult to because the access is so tightly restricted it's really hard to kind of break out of that um, and sort of generate more kind of original content so all of this is just one big cyclical crisis really for the profession it's got to try and find a way um, out of this and it's got to think creatively and imaginatively um, about where it takes things in the future and I think part of that is actually sort of moving away from that reliance on official sources or the kind of sports cycle of getting all your news from clubs um, from governing bodies um, and it's about trying to perhaps you know certainly talk more engage more with fans fan stories and try and kind of fall back more on kind of really good, solid news principles of developing a good wide contact base. Um, and I think that would help to kind of restore sports journalists kind of trust with the public. Because I think for years now, there's been probably a general feeling that sports journalism is part of that kind of corporate and commercial machinery that operates around um, professional sports. Um, and I think it just needs a little bit of a reassessment um, to try and kind of break out of that reliance, um, I think, on those kind of um, official sources, really. Yeah, uh, you, you brought up the Times and the Telegraph behind their subscription, uh, behind the paywall. They've still got to operate a newspaper as well daily, and we'll come to maybe where newspapers may be going um, in just a bit. But then you've got specialist subscription services like The Athletic, um, which launched in the UK last summer after starting in the USA. And the aim there is actually sort of the anti, what's, what we 
what you've been talking about before about feeding the beast it's about less churn it's about more quality sports writing time to get a, a quality piece together it is refreshing um, do you think it's a it's a good model that would be um that's going to really break through here properly because we don't really know how well the athletics performing um lots of decent pr um lots of subscri- lots of subscription offers as well though throughout this last year yeah i mean first of all what i will say is from a sports journalism education point of view that was a great development i mean that really was you know <laughs> yeah. manner from heaven in terms of moving the kind of conversation around sports journalism forward and it was a very interesting new model that, that emerged and a real i think where it was a real shake-up for that industry is you know, sports journalism has always been very much kind of entwined with traditional media. And there was a sense that if you didn't work for traditional media, you weren't a proper sports journalist. And I think for a few years now, certainly the narrative against more kind of maybe bloggers, more alternative sources of sports journalism, inverted commas, you can kind of argue that narrative. But then suddenly you're in a situation where, you know, you've got sports journalists who are working for traditional media suddenly going over to this new venture and it just kind of throws the whole thing up in the air about what's legitimate sports journalism and where is the actual home of sports journalism and obviously it's now becoming increasingly fragmented and yeah really interesting I mean what I would say about that is what I think so interesting um, about it's a, it's a truly global sports journalism model in many respects it's well maybe global is a bit take a bit too far but certainly it's a transatlantic model and what it kind of perhaps is failing to consider a little bit is the kind of different historical trajectories of sports journalism in the US compared to the UK whereas in the US sports always existed as this kind of specialist form of media whereas the UK since the late sort of 20th early um, sorry late 19th early 20th centuries it kind of specialist sporting press really sort of died died out as a force and never kind of re-established uh, meaningfully and we've always associated sports journalism as part of a kind of wider newsroom as part of a wider uh, newspaper product um, so in America that wasn't such a big leap of faith I think for sports fans as it has been in the UK where we just don't have that kind of um, that that culturally cultural way of kind of consuming media but we, we associate sport with alongside other forms of journalism so i think it's been really interesting um to see that um and um we can't you can't assume that just because it's worked in america it's, that model is going to work in the uk for those reasons i mean obviously what's happened with this in in, in lockdown is well look i mean if you've got sort of traditional newspaper organizations um where there's no sport happening to a certain you know so we talked about telegraph and times now if you're a telegraph Times subscriber you're in a situation there where actually it's not just about the sport i'm not you know mm. i may be subscribing mainly for the sport but you know i'm reading the news i'm reading pull out sections whatever there's more to it but what happened in lockdown is you've got a subscription service that's all about sport <laughs> that's only about sport and that is where you kind of come unstuck a little bit and nobody saw this coming but i think that's that's put at the athletic in a realm where they've got very different considerations to other news organizations and maybe it's kind of exposed the vulnerability of that kind of specialist sport 
model when you get to these kind of these sorts of crises really um if you like um so yeah i think really interesting be interesting to see how they kind of plan in the future but you know like i said earlier the, the sort of wheels are back on track there's football to write about there's cricket now to write about and other sports will be coming on the sort of stream soon so um yeah things look like they're, they're back up and running again but i think it's been interesting um it kind of really makes you realize what are the different maybe not so much limitations but different considerations of diff of these different business models and also the other thing to say about that about the athletic is you know we kind of need to think about this model really more alongside maybe a sort of kind of sky sports package maybe even alongside a netflix amazon prime and that's certainly how the athletic have kind of positioned themselves they've kind of described themselves as the netflix of sports but you know what we had in lockdown it's a bit like netflix saying look we can't show you all the latest shows we've got to set you know we're going to show you 70 sitcoms you know instead and you know it's it's different once you kind of set your stall out and saying this is where we are you know it's just a realization i guess that sport is quite crisis prone in many respects you know it's quite unpredictable and you know there's got they're probably thinking strategically they've got to build in more contingency i think in future final question then really um just about about newspapers like what, what do you think they need to do to survive like what's the future of newspapers we've seen the guardian you know they announced that almost 200 people are going to be losing their jobs it's a really tricky time for for papers and they're in a bit of a transition aren't they deciding what they're going to do and I mean, how how can they compete are we going to see them around in i don't know 20 30 years time what's your what's your prediction gosh i mean it's a really good question it's a real sort of kind of silver bullet of an answer and you know nobody really knows um i, I mean it's different i mean what we've seen over the last sort of 20 years a lot of kind of merges particularly in terms of sunday operations merging with their daily operations we've seen mergers across titles um for example um with sort of reach plc where you've now got the mirror and you've got the express in the same stable and i think we're just going to see a continuation of that really so just more and more increased consolidation which is really bad for the news industry in the sense that you then get even further away from that kind of plurality of different news um, and different people producing that news you know, it's absolutely vital um, for a healthy democratic society really uh, but the more and more it consolidates the more it's just going to kind of be a very limited and repetitive kind of stream of news and probably an increased reliance um, and it's been going this way for a long time um, on, on press agencies such as press association um, and, and reuters and uh, yeah really really difficult i mean it's it's just it just feels like it's being massively deprofessionalized at the moment as well where um sort of the salaries are kind of going out of journalism and have been for, for a long time and um yeah i mean you know if you look at us as a course um as a subject area at the university you know we have a lot of graduates now um who, who sort of move into pr roles and i think as pr and journalism continues to blur um i think what we're going to see is a continued expansion of that kind of sector where we're not then you know you're not thinking so much about job opportunities at traditional media you're more thinking in terms of working as a journalist within a you know maybe not a kind of 
primarily non-journalistic organization mm. and yeah I, I mean all that's going to happen i think is the pr sector will continue to expand and become more journalistic like mm. in character so um i think that's probably where it's looking in terms of what newspapers need to survive i think you know it's really easy just to kind of throw your hands up in the air and say oh well what, what can you do you know the internet is is kind of killing us really but i think you know newspapers could do a lot more to produce a better product really i mean if you look at for example the local media i mean i, I just think if you're a local um, newspaper your number one priority has got to be covering court covering council uh, but i don't think that's something that's really happened um so straight away it's kind of yeah there's a question of priorities there in terms of what kind of news are you actually generating and what value there is in that news um and also i just think it's just you know getting better distribution models i think you know there's been a sort of kind of re general recognition in you know for a while that we're getting away from the physical newspaper but um you know who's to say that, that there isn't this renaissance towards um kind of reaction towards kind of quality journalism towards get you know consuming news through a newspaper again and yeah no newspaper really has a very decent distribution model in terms of how it actually gets a newspaper to people to to its consumers so yeah the industry i, I don't think has helped itself um in this kind of period either i don't think it's necessarily got its priorities right and um yeah uh i'm not sure if it's responded to i, I don't think it's done enough to evolve and, and change the way and reimagine what journalism is i think it kind of thought it could get away with just doing the same old thing same old and it, it, eventually it will all be fine and that's obviously not turned out to be the case so i think it could have done a lot more to sort of adapt and, and reconsider what, what it is and, and, and how to do things really looking forward to um reading your reading the book when when would it be out roughly yes it's, it's still it's still a while off um yeah um it's it'll be later uh later second half next year right. um yeah i think i think yeah it'll probably be around around that mm -hmm. time really so cool. yeah yeah cool um we end every podcast with some sort of ran random questions quick fire away from uh, your work first is uh, what advice would you give to your younger self uh do you know what i mean i think i think being young is difficult enough as it is there's a lot of pressure and you're, you're making trying to make big decisions that are going to shape the rest of your life and i don't know you get so many so much advice coming at you from people who are older than you and uh, you know i'm not sure adding another voice to that is going to help i'm not sure my younger self would probably listen to myself to be honest so yeah i'd probably um I'll probably get a powder dry there and just let my younger self just make the mistakes because um i think sometimes you just have to um and i, I don't know i don't know, trying to intervene in that aspect um is is wise really i think you have to make that part of life is is the making mistakes is the is the figuring things out and yeah going your own journey um it's hard to see how it wouldn't come across as massively patronizing <laughs> to be honest um, if you could pick any other subject to study at the University of Brighton, what might that be? Oh, crikey. I mean, uh, yeah, I mean, you know, journalism is all about uh, storytelling. Um, and I think something like creative writing is interesting in the sense that's also about storytelling, but in a very different way to journalism. So I think I'd be quite interested how 
a subject like that kind of looks at that storytelling process differently to journalism. So I think that there's, there, there'd be a curiosity there, I think. Pick a favourite place in Sussex. Uh, <laughs> I'm not from Sussex originally, so I'm, I'm not sure I know it as well as I should to be. I mean, I've lived here for years, but uh, yeah, I should have got out a lot more. Um, yeah, I mean, I... I, I um, I live in Eastbourne and I, I really like it here. I think it's a really nice. You know, the great thing about Sussex, particularly when we think about the major conurbations along the coast, Brighton, Eastbourne and then Hastings. What I really like about that is um, they're three very different places, um, but they're great in their own right. So I think, you know, depending on when the mood takes you, I think you've got something there. And I, I, I mean, you know, I, I guess I, I kind of gravitate more towards Eastbourne because I know it better than any other area and I think if you know somewhere that well um then yeah you're probably in a better position to say yeah that's that's I, I like I like a lot about it so yeah I'll go with that but yeah I think it's a great county you know great you know Alfriston's amazing up the road here it's a lovely village and some great places here I mean I'd recommend it mm. to anyone I mean particularly in terms of place you know students to study for example it's um you know particularly if you like I think if you like an outdoors life um, particularly around here you, you could not ask you couldn't ask for more really it's fantastic and there's something interesting about you which a lot of people may not know oh uh well i don't think it's not necessarily interesting but um it's a bit weird um but i um i actually have a fear of frogs and toads uh which which is actually a uh, a proper phobia um it's what, called a phobia yeah it's okay, actually a yeah. proper medical thing so yeah that's really bizarre but um yeah that's 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 the thing that that happens really and you know a few months ago my next door neighbors uh got a new pond so yeah you can imagine um yeah. the sort of anxiety i'm faced with stepping outside into the garden every time now so yeah i need to i need to deal with this at some point i think okay okay um, and if you finally if you could pick three people to host at a dinner party um they could be past or present who would they be and and why Past or present? Oh crikey! I mean, uh, yeah. I mean, I don't. I don't know. I mean, it's it's hard to answer this kind of question without it's just sounding really cringe. And I just think I'm gonna be as cringe as you like. Well, I'm gonna say I'm gonna say my wife and, and two kids because I'm you know who else would I rather have dinner with? And uh, to be honest, anyone else? If I start talking about famous people, they're just people I don't know. So. <laughs> They say I never meet your heroes as well. So, <laughs> you know, and I think my general experience of kind of meeting um, people I've um, admired from afar and seeing them in the flesh is generally sort of <laughs> kind of probably from one of disappointment. So, yeah, I'll probably stick to, to what I know, what, what I'm familiar, who I'm familiar with, really. Mm. Simon, thanks so much for coming on. Really great to get your thoughts on um, so many of those issues. Um, and if you want to look into studying with us, take a look at our website, brighton.ac.uk. Clearing is open now for this year, and you can also look at the uh, courses study in 2021. A um, couple of good courses there, and uh, all the information is on the website. That's it for this week. Please do like, subscribe, and review. We're on YouTube, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, all the major podcast platforms. Thanks for listening.